You're listening to Tulsa Bible Church's Sermon Podcast, as Pastor Jared teaches on the Upper Room Discourse in John. If you'd like more information, visit us at tulsabible.org. We're going to look at uh, John 14, 1 through 12. And if you just, you're probably familiar in some kind of way with this passage, I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6, very famous uh, Christian verse. A lot of us commit that to memory. This whole passage is wrapped up so much in the concept of knowing God, what it means to have a knowledge, a true knowledge, a genuine knowledge of God. If you look down at verse 5 really quickly, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Verse 7, Jesus responded, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him. And you have seen him. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen the Father has seen me. Um, this passage is all about knowing God. And that presents some very difficult things for our modern minds, especially in a postmodern context in which we live. And I want to just open this up with a little bit of history. Around, uh, around the year 1750, a new breed of thinkers began to make its way across uh, the continent in Europe. On the heels of the Reformation, the battles between Protestants and Catholics were not only ugly, but they were also very bloody. In 1618, there was a, a great war that started. It was actually it's known as the Thirty-Year War. And it was a war that was between the um, Protestant Bohemians and the Catholic Habsburgs. And what happened at that time in Europe was a lot of people, depending on your affiliation, either as a Protestant or a Catholic, would ally themselves to other nation states that would identify with those specific, specific uh, branches of, of Christianity, if we can say that, or those um, specific denominations. And so this 30-year war was estimated to kill about 8 million people before it was all said and done in addition to uh, disease and starvation, of course. It led to the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648 that brought the 30-year war to an end. And if you don't think that freedom of religion is good for any nation or state, uh, think again back to the 100-year war, the 30-year war, and all the lives that were lost because of it. Europeans were literally sick of conflict and war, especially around the idea of religion. And they saw a more peaceful existence beyond religious battles and religious wars. And with that sentiment, something called the Enlightenment was ultimately born. It was named the Enlightenment because its great thinkers perceived that the Middle Ages were a time of uh, intellectual stupor, this darkness, that the culture, the society, and Western civilization itself needed to be awoken out of their darkness and inability to reason and rationalize. It's also called the age of reason, and the most cherished ideal during the Enlightenment was reason itself. No longer did people want to appeal or did they care to appeal to an outside external authority other than themselves. Now they just looked to themselves, the autonomous human thinking mind, to understand the universe. In the past, the universe was held together by a mysterious power. There was something of, a, of an enchanted world that existed. Uh, everybody kind of at least assumed that God was real. Eternity was real. 
uh, the supernatural was real. In the Enlightenment, the universe was simply a giant mechanism of levers and pulleys and devices uh, that could really be studied and understood, understandable to those who had the time to study it. The father of the Enlightenment was a man by the name of John Locke. He wrote an essay, listen to the titles of these, of these writings, an essay concerning human understanding in 1690. He also wrote The Reasonableness of Christianity in 1695. He believed that human reason should be the final arbiter of truth in issues related to politics, ethics, and even religion. If you can reason it, you can believe it, in other words. The central figure of the Enlightenment was a man by the name, uh, let's see if I can say this right, Francois-Marie Orouet, or Arouet, uh, otherwise known as pen name was Voltaire. He was the dominant cultural force of his day. And Voltaire had a slogan, it goes something like this, crush infamy. The most infamous institution in society at that time was the Roman Catholic Church. Voltaire said that the church demanded loyalty from its members and forced upon them a ridiculous and unsophisticated mythology that put down any dissenters with the sword who didn't agree with the church. And he, he beckoned over and over again for the culture to move past the religious authorities that were behind the church and what it was. The Enlightenment was a, it was a cultural watershed. It was a time that literally changed the face of history. In order to penetrate the mysteries of the world, individual autonomous human thought now reigned supreme. This is the time of the Sir Isaac Newtons, the Francis Bacons. If you could put it in a scientific method to prove it, then that meant that it was real. And they concluded that the unaided human reasonableness and rationality is to make is, is used to make sense of everything in the world, and that's all you needed to make sense of everything. It impacted Christianity in, in at least two ways. On the one hand, it impacted Christianity uh, by putting it through the rubric of human thinking more than anything else. So if the miracles seemed unreasonable to you, you just cast out the miracles as fabrications, things that the disciples made up in order to perpetuate their system of belief and their thinking. If you, if you couldn't rationalize the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then Jesus didn't really raise from the grave. Uh, part of what came out of the Enlightenment was a complete redefining of Christianity. Uh, like a, I've used this illustration before, but it was like a field dresser that was gutting a deer. You took out all the heart and soul of Christianity. You took out the miracles, the authority of God's Word, the inspiration of God's Word, the what Jesus accomplished in His earthly ministry, the resurrection. Anything, if you couldn't prove it scientifically, if you couldn't rationalize it, you just took it out. And what you were left with was just this empty husk of something that kind of resembled Christianity, but it was in name only. It really wasn't Christianity from the Scriptures. Others responded by swinging the pendulum of the Enlightenment thinkers completely to the other side. Uh, there's just, other people just said that there's some things that cannot be proven when it comes down to faith. There's some things that you cannot rationalize or reason through. And so, the one thing that you cannot rationalize is my personal experience and my personal feelings about what I think 
or who I believe God is. And so the romantics and the romanticism came out of the Enlightenment as a response against the intellectia of the day. Um, later created a, a branch of Christianity that is um, through and through our world today called Protestant liberalism. Uh, Protestant liberalism is, is what happens when you boil down all of Christianity to a common experience or to a common feeling that everybody should have. And here's what I want to introduce this with history. How exactly do you know what you know? John 14 is going to ask us to dig into our epistemology. How exactly do you come to understand and to believe the things that you come to understand and believe? Verse 9 is a startling question from Jesus to Philip. Have I been with you this long, Philip, and you still don't know me? What does it ultimately mean to believe and to know God? John 14 will tackle that question. Some of you are inclined to modernity. I know God intellectually. I study the scriptures. I can parse verbs. I can break down passages. I can put these thoughts together. I can interpret this, and I know it's true because of my own intellectual knowledge and ability to do that. Other people come alongside the other way, and they just say, you know, I don't know, but here's what I experience. Here's what I feel. Um, Tozer talked about knowledge of God in a very key way when he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. C.S. Lewis added to that, and he said, no, it's not actually the most important thing about us. Actually, what God knows about us is the most important thing about us. Um, this morning, we're going to continue our sermon series in the Upper Room Discourse, and I've kind of Looking at this whole section of Scripture, John 13 through 17, very a brief view at this section of Scripture under the idea of the vital signs of believers, because Jesus addresses so many things in the Upper Room Discourse that are vital for Christians and for believers at all times everywhere. And one of those vital concerns is knowing God. What does it mean to know God? We're going to see two things from the text this morning, John 14. 1 through 12, we're going to see that, number one, in knowing God, faith is a priority. Faith is a priority when it comes to a personal relationship with God. And number two, knowledge must be personal. Knowledge must be personal. J.I. Packer um, has a classic book called Knowing God, and he writes in it, he says, once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place on their own accord. The most important business that we can be about is knowing God genuinely, deeply, having a personal relationship with him. And here's how it starts. It starts, number one, with faith. Faith is a priority. Look down at John 14, verse 1. John writes here, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, "'Let not your hearts be troubled.'" Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would, I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. Let me read that again. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also." 
Verse 1 is a, it's a difficult verse to translate, and it seems simple enough. Um, Jesus says a very easy initial command here, let not your hearts be troubled. The second part of the verse is diff- more difficult than the first part. You can translate, believe in God, believe also in me, those two phrases, as indicatives or imperatives. Jesus could be commanding his disciples, believe in God, believe also in me. Or he could be simply stating, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, you also believe in me. Or one of them could be imperative, one of them could be indicative. Or the first one could be indicative, the second one could be imperative. Whatever the translation, Jesus is clearly beckoning and calling his disciples to a deeper faith. He wants his disciples to trust him. And there's a reason why. I want you to turn back to chapter 13, verse 33. We just read this last week, last Sunday. Jesus says to his disciples, this is after uh, Judas leaves the Last Supper with the disciples. He says to the rest of the 11 of them, verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And when Jesus said that to his disciples, their hearts were troubled. Very much at every level. And it's very understandable. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. The Gospel of John is written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He spent the last three years with these 12 men, now 11, and he told them that he was going away. He told Peter, he just finished telling Peter that he was going to deny him after Peter said, surely I will not I'll I'll stay truthful and and faithful to you. And Jesus kind of brought him down to some um, humility in that moment. One thing I find amazing about this passage, one thing I find amazing about Jesus, Jesus knew what was ahead of him as he gives this command in John 14. Jesus knew that he was about to be arrested in Gethsemane. He knew he was about to be uh, taken to a, a Roman cross. He knew more than that even that he was about to face the wrath of the Father for the sins of humanity. In John 12, verse 27, it says that his soul was troubled, speaking of Jesus. In John 13, verse 21, it says that his spirit was troubled. And yet, on this night of all nights, when he could have certainly used a little comfort and consolation from his disciples, yet even in this moment, He is the one who tells them, do not let your hearts be troubled. He never stops shepherding. He never stops comforting. He never stops caring. He is the one who gives. He is the one who comforts. He is the one who cares for his disciples, even on this night. I love this statement from Corey Tenboom. She says, worrying doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. Worry doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. If you look at the world, you will be distressed. If you look at yourself, you will often be depressed. If you look at Christ, you will be at rest. Jesus is offering rest, comfort, and care at the moment that we would least expect it in his earthly life, and it's an amazing thing. Jesus gives us a promise that he is preparing a place for us And these verses don't necessarily teach that there's a mansion that's set aside for everybody and glory 
and in heaven. It simply says that provisions have been made, and there is ample room in eternity for all of those who would ultimately trust him and him alone for salvation. Let me ask you a question really quick. You guys, uh, have you guys ever painted a room in your house before? Have you ever slapped paint on a wall? Slapping paint is what some of our friends in uh, Kansas used to tell us because you just slap it on there. You put the paint on as fast as you can. doesn't matter what you spill, where it splatters. Just put the paint on the wall. This is an easy thing to do, right? Simple to go into a room and paint a room. Just go in there, get a paintbrush, mix it up a little bit, throw it on the wall, and you're good to go. Uh, one thing I learned about painting in the long and tenured years of my existence is that you just don't paint a wall. You just don't go into a room, get a gallon of paint, shake it up, and start brushing it on there. Uh, before you paint a wall, you got to prep the wall. you got to look for all the holes. you got to look for all the um, marks and the ticks. you got to wash the walls, you dust off the baseboards, you tape, put painter's tape on the parts that you don't want paint to be on, you put a canvas down, you do a lot of things before you paint, you got to prep, you start wiping the walls, you do all these things. Ultimately, when it comes to painting, what I've learned is that order is important. You put the priorities in place, you do the first things when you're supposed to do the first things. When it comes to knowing God, Order is extremely important. Uh, long ago, there was a, a very famous theologian who went by the name of Anselm of Canter Canterbury. Anselm was a bishop, lived in the uh, 11th century, 10th century AD. And he was a, um, a great and a deep thinker in the history of the church. In fact, uh, he studied logic and rationality and reason before the Enlightenment ever came to exist. He wrote books on the reasonableness of Christianity, the rational rationality of the incarnation, even, when God took on flesh in Jesus. He mastered logic and grammar. Anselm, Anselm also gave us one of the best definitions of what it means to do theology and to know God. And here's what he said. He said, theology is faith-seeking understanding. Theology is faith-seeking understanding. If you're going to know God, you believe in God, and then you grow in that understanding, and you grow in that faith as time progresses. It cannot be, and it must not be, the opposite way around. If you flip and put understanding before faith, now all of a sudden you'll believe it if you can understand it. If it makes sense to you, you'll place your faith in it. But if it doesn't make sense to you, you won't place your faith in it. If you reverse those two things, see, knowing God is faith-seeking understanding. Why? Some things aren't going to make sense to us. Uh, Christianity isn't always reasonable. Christianity isn't always rational. Um, the Apostle Paul says that Christianity is, is foolishness to the Greeks. They can't understand how a, a perfect, sovereign God would take on flesh and die at the hands of Romans. But to those who believe, it is the wisdom of God. And so we start in our walk of knowing God, we start by faith, and we grow into that understanding. And, and listen, I know there's, you guys love apologetics? I love Christian apologetics. But let me just make it really clear, you're not gonna reason somebody into the, into the kingdom of God. 
At the end of the day, we need to be ready to make a defense for the hope that is in us with gentleness and respect toward outsiders. But it has to come into another person's life by faith alone in Christ alone. And a lot of times that doesn't make sense. Faith-seeking understanding is how we first approach knowing God. Number two, knowledge of God must be personal. Knowledge of God must be personal. Look down at verse 4 in John 14. Jesus says, you know the way where I am going. Thomas now said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough, enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still not, do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? These, uh, these verses in John 14 have at least two problems when we read them. Uh, there's probably more than that, but there's at least two of them. Uh, the first problem is this. Modern people have a lot of obsessions. We have a lot of things that consume us. Modern people are obsessed with self. Uh, we're obsessed with our things. We're obsessed with our time. We're obsessed with our looks. We're obsessed with our wants. We're obsessed with our careers. We're obsessed with our felt needs, what we think we need in the moment, and distinguishing those from our wants and our basic needs. A lot of times you can identify those things by stopping for a second and thinking about your prayer life. What are the things that you pray for the most in your life? I want you to kind of just take a second and think about the things that you're praying for the most in your life. And then I want you to think about all the great, unbelievable prayers that we have in the Bible and especially in the New Testament. And understand that the Apostle Paul rarely prays for the things that we typically pray for as believers. When the Apostle Paul gives us some of the greatest prayers in all of Scripture, he prays things like Ephesians 1, that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened, that you might know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior at a deeper level. He prays things like Ephesians chapter 3, that we might know the length and breadth and width of the knowledge and the love of God that he has for us that is beyond anything that we can imagine. Our problem when we read John 14 is that, number one, we're obsessed with ourself. And the essence of Christianity, the essence of what Christianity is, is not knowing yourself. The essence of Christianity is knowing God the Father, through Christ, and having in the relationship with the Holy Spirit. The second problem, it's very possible to do all kinds of things in the name of Christ and still not know Christ. How many things did Philip do with Jesus up to this point in John 14? Philip did a lot of things with Jesus. Uh, Philip was called in John chapter 1. He was one of the first guys that um, Jesus reached out to and to become a follower and a fisher of men. He, he witnessed the miracles with Jesus. He ministered with Jesus. He performed miracles 
as many of the disciples who were sent out in Matthew chapter 10 to go perform these miracles and cast out demons and heal sicknesses. Philip was involved with all of those things. He served with Jesus. He listened to Jesus. He did a lot with Jesus. And yet, did he personally know Jesus? You can, you can be doing all the right things and going to all the right places and do it all in the name of Christ and yet still not even personally have a relationship with Jesus. And that is a, that is a problem. That is a scary thing to think about. Thomas asked a really very simple question at the beginning of this. Thomas asked, how can we know the way? And Jesus didn't answer and say, this is the way. He gave us a little bit more than that. He says, he, he is the way, the truth, and the life. Why didn't he just say, I am the way? and leave it at that. The way this is written is to convey um, syntactical coordination, okay? So when Jesus says he is the way, that is a coordinate noun with the truth and the life. All three of those things are on the same level. Jesus is those three things uh, to those who believe in him. Yet the principal question, what is the way, was answered in such a way that truth and life serve more of a supporting role in understanding Jesus' answer to that question. Jesus is the way to God precisely because he is the truth. He is the perfect embodiment of truth. He is truth in flesh. All of truth leads ultimately to Jesus. Jesus is the way because God precisely, he is the way to God precisely because he is the life. Apart from Christ, there is no life. You have no life if you don't have Jesus. He is the resurrection and the life. When Jesus says he is the way, it can easily be confused. Jesus is not saying that he has carved out the path to the Father and now follow in the path that he has carved out. That's not what Jesus is saying. Rather, Jesus is the path. He is God in the flesh. So this is a, a, a claim of exclusivity and it is a claim of mediation that if you want to get to the Father, you're going to have to go through Jesus. And there's even more than that. Look down at verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on account of of the works themselves. Now, if this is true, if, this, if the essence of Christianity is a personal relationship with God, it necessitates that God had to make himself personally knowable to mankind. If the essence of Christianity is to have a personal relationship that knows God at an intimate individual level, then God had to make himself personally knowable in order for that to happen. John 14 is not the first place where someone asks to see God. Moses asked to see God. Remember, his glory passed before him in the cleft of the rock. Isaiah was a prophet in the Old Testament that got a vision of the Lord in all of his glory and his splendor. And it struck him with woe, for he saw his own unclean lips before the holy, holy, holy God. John 14 is unique. It's very unique up until this point. People have asked to see God in the past. 
But never has anybody said in any of those passages, you've already seen him. If you look at me, you have seen the Father. Jesus said, you have seen him. Stop looking around for another sign. You don't need it. Uh, the great wonder and the truth of the, of the Trinity is, is dispelled in these verses. Um, in order for God to be personal, knowable to us, he had to make himself personally known through the three persons of the Trinity. And we cannot fathom an infinite God because we are finite. We cannot fathom an omnipresent God because we are present in one place at one time. We cannot fathom a God that is so sovereign and majestic as the God we serve because we are not. But he made himself known through personhood, through the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God had made himself known to us in condescending favor and grace so that he could be known. The nature of the Trinity separates Christianity from every other religion on the planet. It tells us that God took on flesh in Jesus Christ, that he truly was God, and he did it all so that we could personally know him and have a relationship with him. Uh, what do we do with this passage? How, do we, how can we apply this passage as we close? Uh, two things. Number one, it is very possible to have informational knowledge without personal knowledge. But in order to have personal knowledge, you have to have informational knowledge. It is possible to have informational knowledge without personal knowledge, but if you're going to have personal knowledge, you must have informational knowledge of God. Uh, some of you here are extremely intelligent. Your IQs are way above mine. Uh, you're smarter than me, and um, you know things at a deeper level, and your capacity to think uh, your intellectual abilities are far greater than mine will ever be. Some of you have either said this to yourself or some of you are currently saying it to yourself. I've thought about the claims of Christ. I've read the scriptures. I've read the miracle accounts. I just, I've analyzed the text for myself and I just can't get there. I can't rationalize. I can't understand the resurrection. I can't get to this place where Jesus is in fact God in the flesh. It just doesn't make sense to me. I can't get to the place where I believe in a, a person who walks through walls and at the end of his life goes up floating in the air into the sky. That's not a Christianity. That's not a religion. I can't believe in a virgin birth. It doesn't make sense to me. And here's the problem with that. You stopped to analyze. You stopped to critically dive in and think about it. At some point in time, you're going to have to face a much more fundamental question. Do you believe that Jesus Christ really lived, breathed, died, and three days later rose again from the grave? And if you can believe and you can place your faith in that, then the miracles, the multiplying, the fish and the bread and every other miracle that Jesus did is nothing compared to that. If you can believe in a God who resurrected from the grave as a person, you can believe in a whole lot of other stuff in the Bible. Um, at some point in time, your Christian relationship has to begin with faith, has to begin with belief. Christianity is not a philosophy. If it was a philosophy, you could think your way into the kingdom of God, but it's not. Christianity is not a science. If it was a science, you could put it through 
the scientific method, put it in a lab and experiment and test your hypothesis. Christianity is not a science. Christianity is not a principle. If it was, you, all you needed was a little bit of a, a help from a life coach. Jesus would come alongside you with, with great mottos and principles for living, but be nothing more than a great moral teacher. Christianity is not just a principle. Christianity is not a religion. If it was, you could do all the things that Philip was doing with Jesus, but that wasn't enough because he still didn't know God personally. Christianity is a relationship, a personal relationship to God, the Father, through his Son, Jesus Christ. Some of us read the Bible and consider Jesus, and we conclude that it doesn't make sense. Of course it doesn't make sense. It's not supposed to make sense if it's about a person. And when it comes to people, people don't make sense all the time. <laughs> all you guys aren't even married and you're laughing at that one, right? <laughs> I don't make sense in my marriage a lot. I don't make sense to people. People don't make sense. But you can still have a relationship with them. You can still know them personally. Christianity is a personal relationship. Number two, personal relationships necessitate loss of control and independence. Personal relationships necessitate loss of control over your life and loss of independence over your life. John 14, 6 doesn't say, I am the way, truth, and life. John 14, 6 says, I am the way the truth, and the life. Every one of those nouns has the definite article in front of it. And what it means is that's not just a claim of exclusivity, it's a command of totally giving yourself to God. When Jesus claims that he is the way to God, that means many, many things. Some people are hesitant to come to Christ because they read that verse and they say, I don't want to be associated with Christianity because of its exclusive claim. What about all these other religions and all the other ways that people have religion and spirituality and they're at peace because of it? I don't want to restrict myself to the claims of Jesus. But also, I don't want to restrict myself to the totality of the demands that Jesus makes on my life. If it's true that it, Christianity is a personal relationship with Jesus, that means that you lose control over aspects of your life. That means that you begin to lose your independence. And that shouldn't startle you. A relationship with anybody in your life, a deep personal relationship means that you are going to lose control over some of the things that are in your life and you're going to lose your independence in life. Um, if, you had a, if you have a friend in your life, uh, who you find out that, uh, I, was just, I was just thinking of something that came up, you find out that they were in the hospital and they were sick. And all of a sudden they call you and, yeah, remember when I had that surgery done? And you're on the other line, you're thinking to yourself, man, I didn't know you had any surgery going on. I didn't know you had any sickness. As the friend on the other line of that call, you're thinking to yourself, how could you not tell me this? I thought we had a much deeper personal relationship. Why would you not tell me something like this so I could, I could be a friend to you and do the things that friends do? Uh, some people dismiss the claims of Christianity because they don't want to lose control. 
and they don't want to lose their independence. But all personal relationships entail losing control and losing independence. In fact, the deeper the relationship is, the more independence you lose because of it, right? The deeper the relationship is, the more control you lose over those relationships. C.S. Lewis put it this way. It's so good. He says, if you don't want your heart to be broken, don't give it to anybody. If you don't want your heart to be broken, don't give it to anybody. But as a result of that, it will then become broken. Not only broken, but it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. Why? Because you didn't give it to anybody. It hasn't been giving to, given to anything or anyone. Jesus says, I am the way. And that means many other things, but it at least means this. It means that he is the reason we live. When Jesus says he is the way, he is the reason we live. Jesus is not just a help for our lives. He is the reason for our lives. He is just not the boost for our careers. He is the reason for our careers because he is the way to the Father through him. He says, I am the truth. What Jesus says here is that his words, who he claimed to be, what he said in the Gospels, needs to have precedence and priority over your feelings, your emotions, and your experiences. Why? Because he is the truth. And sometimes the truth is in great conflict with what you feel. When Jesus says he is the truth, here's what that means. You're going to appeal to the truth of Christianity and to the truth of God's word more than you're going to appeal to your emotions, experiences, and feelings. Because he is the truth. Jesus is the life that means that you have no life apart from Christ. There is no life. You are just one step closer to the grave and to a deeper sense of your true death and spiritual death apart from him. But if Jesus is the life, he allows us to experience not only eternal life, but even life today. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to give them life today and life eternal as the good shepherd. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And he came to the earth to die on a cross for our sins, to rise again three days later, paying for our sins and allowing us to be forgiven in the sight of God. He did it all for one reason, at least one reason, so that you and I could personally know God the Father through his son, Jesus Christ. He did it all. The vital aspect of Christianity from the Upper Room Discourse. Do you know God the Father through Jesus Christ? Do you have a personal knowledge of Jesus? It goes deeper than so many other things in the Christian life, but this one is vital. This is the one that you have to understand. This is the one that you must go deeper and have that personal, intimate knowledge of who God is through Jesus. And he gives you that relationship based on grace, grace through faith. Let's pray.